On the morning of August 24th, in the year 79 AD, a small but prosperous coastal town on the southwest coast of modern Italy was enjoying a normal, comfortable day. By any measure, the, the town was thriving. It was a, a happy, prosperous place full of wealth. The homes were luxurious, lavishly decorated, full of all kinds of creaturely comforts that they uh, could have in those days. And the town's name was Pompeii. And at noon, the volcano known as Mount Vesuvius erupted and covered the entire town in 19 feet of burning ash. So that's the reason uh, Pompeii and Vesuvius are so famous today, it, it, because this sudden downpour of, of ash from the sky froze a moment in time and preserved everything as it was. It's like this unique uh, 3D picture as they've excavated that, that preserved in the ash, we can see what life in ancient Roman society was like. It's this, this snapshot, this 3D moment in time. Primarily, it's frozen that way because the people of Pompeii had no idea this was coming. Excavations have uncovered, as they, they've gone into homes, they found bread still in the ovens and food still on the tables. They were unprepared. Pompeii was living this luxurious life full of comfort and what appeared to be safety, and they could not have been more wrong. They were blind to an unimaginable danger that struck in a moment. And I worry, brothers and sisters, I worry that perhaps today we in the Bible belt with a, a comfort-focused faith are more like them than we would care to admit. That we, too, focus on creaturely comforts and the, the appearances of, of, uh, of, of success in this world. And we do not recognize that there is a day coming when all will be called to account. That's certainly what Jesus is addressing with his own generation in the passage we're looking at today. He speaks to them and he identifies that they are living a comfortable, easy life. And he warns them the volcano will one day erupt. That's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. So... Uh, we're continuing our walk through Matthew's gospel. If you're new or you're visiting today, welcome. Uh, here we work through books of the Bible, just section by section, chapter by chapter, looking at every single uh, verse that God's word has for us. And today we are in Matthew chapter 12, towards the end of chapter 12. And most of this chapter has featured Jesus kind of uh, sparring with the religious leaders of the day. So at the beginning, his disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees got mad at him. And then they got mad later that he healed a guy on the Sabbath in a synagogue, no less. And then they got mad that he cast out a demon and said he was using Satan's power to do it. And so last week, Jesus really began his rebuke of them, identifying the fact that they have evil words and evil Hearts and, and today, really, he's going to flesh that out even more. He's going to talk about the evil of these leaders and the generation that they represent. 
Uh, it may look, if you're looking at your Bibles, it may look like we're looking at two separate passages today because there's, there's two headings. It's kind of broken down uh, if in an English Bible under separate headings. Uh, but we're, we're looking at them together today uh, for, for two main reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, Jesus, between this first section about the sign of Jonah and this sex, second section about this unclean spirit, Jesus doesn't stop talking. So it's not the case that he talks about the sign of Jonah and then they're like, well, hey, what about this other thing? And so he starts talking about the unclean spirit. No, he just keeps talking. There's no new location. There's no new question. There's no interruption. Jesus is talking through this whole section. And the second uh, what reason we're treating these together is I think uh, the writer of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, uh, wants us to see them together. So notice the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in verse 39. He says, an evil and adulterous generation. And then notice the last words out of his mouth in this section. Verse 45, he talks about an evil generation. So he's he's putting bookends on this section, showing us that this all hangs together. This all is part of one uh, consistent point. Jesus is making one, uh, one primary point, identifying the evil of the teachers and of the generation. But he does do that in two ways. And the first is that he shows them they are a misled generation. And the second is he shows them they are an empty generation. So that's how we're going to break down our passage this morning. If you're a note taker, there's your outline. This is a misled generation and this is an empty generation. Let's dive into that First point, their misguided nature, verses 38 and 39. So then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Our passage starts with these religious leaders the scribes and Pharisees coming to Jesus once again. We're going to see this again and again in Matthew's gospel. It's kind of exhausting. They just keep coming to him. But at this point, it's clear they've, they've started to run out of ideas. Right? They, they, they try to accuse him, and all they ever accomplish is they make themselves look dumber. It's very clear. Everyone's watching. They're like, Jesus won that argument right there. So they're like, what well, new strategy. Let's, let's demand that he impress us. Let's, let's go to Jesus and let's tell, hey, we, we want to see a sign. Give us a miracle, some display of, of your power, which is absurd if you've been paying attention. Because, and it, it really just perpetuates the impression they don't know what they're doing because Jesus, just like a minute ago, healed a dude's withered hand in the synagogue and they got angry about it. And he, he's been casting out demons throughout this whole book and they're coming to him and they're like, okay, impress me. Were you not here earlier? I mean, if I'm Jesus, I, I'm like, you know, turn back a page, read what I just did. How pretentious are they? And there's two ways that, that Jesus deals with pretentious people. The first is he just tells them straight up what's wrong with them. And the second is he, he, he will tell them something they don't understand and their misunderstanding reveals their presumption. It reveals their pretentiousness. It reveals their ignorance. We're going to see a lot of that second one in the next chapter when we get to Jesus' parables. That's what he's doing pretty much through all of them. He's showing them, you don't understand this thing, and that's your problem. Your misunderstanding actually exposes what's really wrong with you. 
So those, those two ways Jesus deals with pretentious people, and he actually does both in our passage here. He gives them the straight talk, and then he also uses this analogy that they clearly don't understand. And the straight talk is, is what comes first. They ask for a sign, and Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. There's no interpretive freedom there, right? There, like, Jesus, give us a sign. And Jesus says, you know who asked for a sign? An evil and adulterous generation. Huh, I wonder, wonder what he's saying about us. It's not really clear. It's very clear. He's calling them evil. Not hard to understand. He also calls them adulterous, which for us is probably weird. We're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? The, the Pharisees are the morality police. That's what we know. They are the morality police. They are super anti-adultery. In fact, at the end of John 7, the beginning of John 8, uh, that passage there, uh, it talks about, it seems like they were like literally hunting a woman uh, to, to catch her in adultery. They're like setting up traps for this kind of thing. So they are anti-adultery. How can you call them adulterous? Well, the Pharisees would certainly have understood what Jesus is saying to them. He is connecting them with an Old Testament theme. So in the Old Testament, adultery is a more poetic way of saying idolatry. Because Israel was married to Yahweh, worshiping any other god is adultery. Yahweh is your husband, therefore worshiping another god is committing adultery. Isaiah 54 verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. So God was their husband, but, but Israel didn't act like it. They went after, they chased after other gods, which was a spiritual adultery. If you're familiar with the book of Hosea, this is probably the most famous thing about Hosea for good reason. Hosea's life was a metaphor for God's relationship with his people Israel. So God comes to Hosea, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, go, he says this to his prophet, go love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So the whole point of the book of Hosea, what, what God is doing there is he's saying, you know what it's like for me to be married to my people? You know what it's like to be their husband? Hosea, I'm going to show you. You go marry a prostitute who's going to continue to go be with other men. That's what it feels like to be me. Idolatry is adultery because Israel was married to God. So Jesus, what he's doing there is he's connecting the Pharisees to their Israelite ancestors who had abandoned the Lord time and time again, who again and again went after other gods, which is unsurprisingly one of the most offensive things they could hear from him. Because it's not just, you know, that the Israelite ancestors in the Old Testament, it's not just they, they worshipped other gods, which is not great. It's that their idolatry involved some of the most uh, reprehensible and uh, PG-13, R-rated kind of behavior you could ever imagine. Things like child sacrifice, sexual perversion. We're talking about, about literal pagan worship practices. That's, that's what Israel's adultery was in much of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees understand what Jesus is, is saying, and they're probably thinking, adulterous? No way! Like, 
I have never once sacrificed a kid to Moloch. I have never engaged in any kind of sexually perverse act. What are you talking about, Jesus? We're not pagans. We're obsessed with keeping the law. We, we never do those kind of things. How are we adulterous? Well, Jesus is going to explain in a little bit. But first, church, what I want you to see right away at the beginning of this passage is that Jesus is, is speaking to the teachers. The teachers are the ones who, who come up to him and they have uh, this question that they ask him. But in response, Jesus rebukes the whole generation. He doesn't just talk about the teachers. Because as go the teachers, so go the people. As go the teachers, so go the people. And church, I want you to ask yourself, who are your teachers? Who are those who you, you give real estate in your mind or for your ears? Who are your teachers that you listen to? Uh, Jared mentioned during our, our Q&A last week in Theological Equipping, we have this great blessing that is also a great curse today. We have unlimited, unbelievable access to all kinds of teachers around the world through blogs, through uh, sermon audio, through podcasts, all, anything you can name it, books, whatever, we have this unlimited access. You can listen to anyone talk about anything. And it's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because there are some great teachers out there. My life has been incredibly blessed by men like John Piper, David Platt, and Tim Keller, who I've, I've just listened to. I've, I've, only, I've met actually two of them, but um, that was for like two seconds. And they don't know me. They could not remember my name. They would not recognize me, but I have been blessed by listening to their ministry. And I am thankful for the, the work they've done in my life. But there are also dangerous teachers. Many who can draw you in and can tickle your ear with things that maybe sound true or just sound nice and inviting that will ultimately lead you down the wrong path. Paul warned us about this, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, wander off into myths. You see the end there? They will turn away from listening to the truth, singular, and wander off into myths. There's a million ways you can go wrong. As go the teachers, so go the people. Church, what you need to realize is who you listen to actually affects you more than you realize. Who you listen to affects you more than you realize. Again, you could say, I listen to you know, this guy because I like when he talks about this thing. I know he's wrong about all these other things. Okay, there, discernment's a real thing. I'm not saying only listen to people who are 100% right all the time. But you are affected by those you expose yourself to. Whether you like it or not, you will, you will imbibe more and more of what they are saying. And there are some who will, as I said, woo you with falsehood. Who will tickle your ears with a worldly message of, of self-reliance, of you can do it. Or maybe uh, they'll, they'll turn the Bible into a vague message about love and acceptance. 
just kind of floating in the air, this general idea of love and acceptance, not rooted in any reality. But the truth is more likely in a context like our own, you will be tempted by those who do champion truth, but who do it with inflammatory rhetoric and anger and hatred and fear. That's what we, in more conservative theological contexts, will be drawn towards. Those who are inflammatory and who will inflame you. Who may preach and speak true things, but who do not push you to gentleness, to confidence in Christ, to godliness. It's a rare thing to find teachers who will push you to both. Both what is true and how to live it out in the world God has put us in. But that's the kind of teachers we need to seek, lest we be led astray. One more thing I want to say on this before we move on. If it's true, as go the teachers, so go the people. Uh, Church, I would just ask that you would regularly in your prayer life be praying for the teachers here at the Parkway Church. Uh, We are the ones that God in his providence has put in a speaking role, put at this pulpit to serve you with the word, and we would treasure your prayers. As we all know our own failings, we all know our own, uh, our, our own bents, things we'll be, we'll be desired to get amped up about and not show love and gentleness, things that we will be maybe soft on. We know our own hearts, and we are not anywhere near perfect, and so we ask for your prayers. We want to steward the responsibility of molding you well. Okay. So, the Pharisees, they want a sign, and next Jesus gives them an illustration they definitely don't understand. Verse 39 again. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So they come to him, they ask for a sign. Jesus says, you want a sign? I will give you a sign. You want me to prove who I am? You want bona fide evidence that I am who I say I am, you're going to get one. It's the sign of Jonah. And you can almost hear that like collective, huh? <laughs> like, Jesus, we know our Old Testament. Thank you very much. There's no sign of Jonah there. Jonah's a book. We know that one, but there's, there's no sign in it. What are, you, what are you talking about? Well, what does this mean? What is the sign of, of Jonah? Uh, Many of you, church, are probably familiar with the story of Jonah. It's one of those stories, kind of like Noah's Ark, that we think is for kids because it's got an animal in it, which doesn't make any sense to me. Noah's Ark is about judgment and God literally destroying the entire earth. Here you go, kids. Enjoy. Look Look at the nice giraffes. Isn't that so wonderful? And Jonah, similarly, is... Uh, somewhat, yeah, PG-13, there's some, some difficulties. Some, uh, Jonah's not a great guy. We'll talk about that in a second, but there was a fish, kids. Uh, many of you may be familiar with it. You may have read it. You may, you may have even seen the VeggieTales movie. Uh, 
I just need to say from the start, you may be surprised, but the pirates who don't do anything have nothing to do with the sign of Jonah. It's a common misconception, but they're not even in the book. I know, it's, I just ruined your whole childhood. But Jonah, Jonah was a prophet who was sent by God to these evil Assyrians in Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, who were the mortal enemies of Israel. They hated them, and Jonah goes there, he preaches, and they repented which was shocking. It's unbelievable for a lot of reasons. First, and the main reason, Jonah was a garbage prophet. He was terrible. He was the worst. Why? He did everything wrong. God said, go to Nineveh. He runs the opposite direction. He has to get, uh, to go on the right track, to get where he's supposed to go, he has to get thrown into the water by a bunch of sailors get eaten by a fish, vomited on the shore, and then finally can get where he's supposed to go. And then, it doesn't get any better, after preaching, he goes and he sits outside the city of Nineveh and kind of, you know, crosses his arm and he's like, I know they repented God, but I'm expecting you to still destroy them with fire. And when God didn't do that, when God received the repentance of the Ninevites, Jonah accused God of being evil. Jonah's not a great guy. So the Ninevites had everything going against them. They were Gentiles, not part of God's people. They were pagan Gentiles, so they were not worshiping the true God. They were really evil pagan Gentiles. The, the VeggieTales movie would have you believe they slap people with fishes. Not, not historically accurate, but it gets the point across, right? They were really, really bad. And to top it off, they had a racist, self-righteous coward for a preacher. That's what Nineveh got. And yet they repented. They hear the word of the Lord, and even their king comes off his throne, dresses him, takes off his royal robe, dresses himself in sackcloth and ashes, a sign of mourning, and pours out his heart before the Lord in repentance. So here, what it seems Jesus is doing is drawing a connection that the book of Jonah doesn't make but seems reasonable, a connection between the Ninevites' repentance and Jonah's time in the fish. So the sign of Jonah for the Ninevites seems to be that the, the prophet spent time in, spent three days in this fish, which is crazy. He should have died. In, in fact, we might even, in the words of the princess bride, think of him as mostly dead. But here he is, shows up in Nineveh, sopping wet and smelling like fish guts. And from that sign, they realize this guy's God is real. He should have died. He should be dead. He should not be here. His God is real, and we better listen. We need to repent. And so Jesus says to his audience, on the day of judgment, those evil pagan Assyrian Ninevites are going to put you to shame. Because they had because they have something far greater than Nineveh ever had. Jesus' generation had Jesus. Jesus says, I've got Jonah beat. Something greater than Jonah is here. He was in the fish for three days. I will be in the heart of the earth for three days. 
I will not be mostly dead. I'm going to die and I will rise. But you still won't care. You still won't care. Jesus uses one more Old Testament example to expose that. He talks about the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba, as she's known in 1 Kings, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So very similar to the Ninevites, another Gentile, another pagan, this time a woman who hoofed it 2,000 plus miles just because she heard Solomon, the king of Israel, has some smart things to say. But Jesus' audience insists on being misled. They've got their teachers who are, who are telling them, here's how you ought to live, here's how, what you ought to believe. And they've got the king of kings. They didn't have to go 2,000 miles to go find. He came to them. And they don't care. They don't care. They're, they're privileged beyond any other generation in the history of the world, and they don't care. Because for those who have been misled and loved falsehood, the taste of truth can be sour. It's a dangerous position to be in. Jesus' generation with, with their arms crossed, demanding he show them a sign, demanding, Jesus, your job is to impress us. You work for us. We need to be impressed right now. And spoiler alert, by the end of this book, Jesus will come out of a grave. The one supreme sign that he is who he said he is. And these same scribes and Pharisees, they will deny it. And they will try to cover it up. They'll spread false rumors to try to make it seem like it's not true because they don't actually care if it's true. They just don't want to have to deal with it because they want to call the shots. When I was a new Christian in high school, I heard so many of my classmates and my friends who I try to share the gospel with say things like, if Jesus was real... I need, if, if he is real, he, should, he needs to prove himself to me. I need some kind of sign. He needs to do this in my life. I need, I need some kind of proof from him. And they're saying, I want a sign. And Jesus says, I have given you the one ultimate sign, the supreme sign that this whole Christianity thing is true. Jesus rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, I hope you realize the center of the Christian faith is a historical claim. We're making a historical claim. It is not, uh, Christianity does not hinge on the feeling in your heart that Jesus is really great. Its foundation is not its, its logical coherence or that it, that it rings true. The center of our faith, brothers and sisters, is a historical claim. The hook that everything hangs on is this. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if that's not true, who cares? All this teaching, everything we're looking at in Matthew, what's the point? Who cares? This guy died. Okay. But if it is true, it changes everything. 
It changes everything. A lot of people today, they have their, their problems with Christianity. Run down the list. I don't like the exclusivity. You know, I don't like, uh, I don't like the strict morals or whatever. I don't like maybe just being told what's right and wrong. And I understand some of that. But what if Jesus rose from the dead? What if he rose from the dead? At that point, it is no longer something interesting you can, you know, move on from and say, oh, wow, yeah, that would that'd be interesting. You can't be halfway. You can't be halfway because, because if you keep following the path you're on, like it, like it doesn't matter, you're ignoring one of the most outlandish, admittedly outlandish claims in all of history. That there was a man who died went into a grave for three days and rose. And there's all kinds of, of, of Christian apologetics defending the faith that focus on the resurrection. I think a lot of that's very, very useful. That's what we should hang our hat on. If we want to talk about, uh, yeah, why, why did the disciples all lay down their lives for this message? That's crazy. A bunch of fishermen decided, yeah, that guy we were following, we're going to go tell the world about it. And... We're going to lay down our lives with joy because we really believe in him. Why would they do that if, if they never actually saw him risen and alive? Nothing in the world could ever explain the emergence of the whole Christian faith but the reality of the resurrection. If the answer is that, if, if, it's, if that's not true, if it didn't really happen... We can throw Jesus and everything else out. But if it did really happen, we must press in on him with our whole lives because Jesus himself bet on his resurrection. He put all his chips right there. I'm going to rise from the dead. And if it's true, it changes everything. But Jesus has, has more to say about the generation in front of him. They're not just misled. They've not just been following these teachers who have led them down the wrong path. In fact, perhaps the bigger problem is they are empty. They are empty. And he shows them that in the next section with an analogy, verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now, for many of us, this is probably one of the more confusing, obscure passages in Matthew's gospel, maybe in the Bible. It's not one you will often hear preached, but we believe in expositional preaching here at the Parkway Church because God has spoken in his word. Uh, and it's important that we understand it. The simple fact is uh, God had gave us that much space. He had that much space to give us his eternal, authoritative, perfect word, and he put this passage in it. So we better pay attention and see what he's doing. But I, I acknowledge it's, it's confusing. It's a little obscure for us. Uh, let me give you just two tips to help us understand it before we, we walk through it. Uh, first, and this is true of any time you're reading your Bible, don't lose sight of the context. 
Don't lose sight of the context. Remember, Jesus is, is, is talking about this evil generation. He's speaking to the leaders and about the whole crowds that are following him, and he's uh, condemning them for their evil. So what he's saying here is directly relevant to what he just said about the Ninevites and the sign of Jonah and the queen of the south. Don't miss the context. But secondly, recognize this is an analogy. Jesus is using an illustration to make a point. Now, it is important, we know this, uh, this is not an imaginary illustration. It's not a fake illustration. So, for example, when I illustrate something in a sermon from Lord of the Rings, I know that's not real most of the time. Jesus is here using an illustration, but it's an illustration from a real thing. So it, he's talking about demon possession, which is a real thing. So we can read the New Testament and not believe that. But it is an illustration, so it, it's unhelpful to get too bogged down in the details, to get all our theology about demonology from something he's using as an illustration. And the point of the analogy, the point is, the, sorry, the, the analogy is making a point the point is not that we understand exactly how demon possession works, although it will inform some of those things. We'll touch on that. But those are the two things to keep in mind. Remember the context, and remember this is an illustration. So let's, let's walk through it here. So first, Jesus calls the demon an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit. That's actually the only time in Matthew's gospel that identification is used. Uh, Mark uses it several times. Luke uses it once or twice. Matthew only uses it here. He talks about demon possessions in a couple places, but this is the only time he refers to the demon as an unclean spirit. He's, in, he's intentional about that. We'll see why in a minute. Next, the demon leaves the man. It is perhaps exercised, it seems, and it goes looking for rest, but it, it never finds Rest. Why? Because that's part of what it means to be a demon. You, there's this, this restlessness to the demonic nature. There's this inability to actually uh, enjoy and be still and rest. So next, the demon decides, I'm going to go back home. That was pretty great back with that guy. I'm going to go back home. It's, it's interesting. He calls the man my house. He's my house. So obviously, again, this is talking about possession, but it's important we also realize that possession is a specific kind of demonic influence we see in the scriptures that exists on the extreme end of Satan's power over a person. It's not the only kind of satanic influence or demonic power that someone could be under. In fact, the Bible very clearly teaches that everyone is born under Satan's power. Part of being in a, sin, a sinner in a sinful world is to be under the dominion of the evil one. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Ephesians 2 You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We know that. Okay, sins were... We understand what those are. You were dead in them. Following the course of this world, we know what that means. Okay. Following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of 
disobedience. Satan's, Satan is at work in all those opposed to Christ. All those who are not believers in Jesus, Satan has a dominion over them. The reality is that, that everyone apart from Christ generally is under that rule and someone who is demon-possessed is more directly and individually, more specifically under uh, the, the oppression, the rule, the influence of a single demon. But all those apart from Christ are generally under Satan's dominion. We'll come, to back, we'll come back to why that matters in, in a minute. But next comes the, the really important part in the analogy Jesus is using. The demon gets back to this man and he finds him empty, swept, and put in order. It's a description of the man's spirituality. It's really nice and tidy. Really nice and tidy. He's finally got his life to put together. Everything's in order. The demon is gone. And now everything looks very, very nice. A nice and tidy spirituality. You could say he's had a moral reformation. He's got his life on track. And what he does not realize is that he is Pompeii. And the clock's about to strike noon. Because the demon goes and gets seven of its buddies, more, all more evil than itself. And they come back and this man's tidy, morally reformed, clean life is covered in destruction. What point is Jesus making? What's the analogy mean? Well, it, it's clear at the end of our passage, he's, he's talking about a future state. He says, so also will it be with this evil generation. Remember, in the context here of the sign of Jonah and the Ninevites and the queen of the south, there's this warning about the coming judgment. And I think that's what Jesus is, is mapping onto the, the seven demons, and I guess eight demons coming to the man. That's what it will be like on the day of judgment. The scribes and Pharisees, who Jesus is describing with the analogy, have a tidy, orderly, but ultimately empty spirituality. It is empty. They've replaced God with this veneer of religion. They, everything looks great, but that's the whole point. That's all they care about. Does it, does it look good? They don't care that it's a shell. And their internal emptiness, Jesus says, is a promise of terrifying destruction that's coming. It may be looking good right now, but one day it will not look so good. Remember at the beginning, when Jesus began his rebuke with the straight talk and he called them adulterous? What does he mean by that? Why did he compare them to their ancient ancestors who sacrificed children and uh, did all kinds of other crazy things? His analogy is, is tracking that historical progress. They, they used to be obviously a mess. That's why Jesus calls it an unclean spirit. It's very obvious that ancient Israel, when they were doing those awful things, the, uh, the idolatry the, the, that is adultery, that that was unclean, that was wrong. Their depravity was more obvious, but now they're not unclean. They've got everything in order, everything nice and tidy, swept, 
put together. And they're thinking, again, Jesus, Jesus, how could you call us adulterous? <laughs> I haven't sacrificed a single one of my kids. And Jesus basically says, that's the lowest bar for morality I've ever heard of. If you want to compare yourselves to those who are obviously messed up, go ahead. But you're just as depraved. The only difference is now you're blind. Now you don't see it. They only care that things look good. And they can only expect judgment. Superficial godliness, empty spirituality that is primarily concerned with the appearance of spiritual health will always be a danger in places where the gospel has had historic influence. It's the reality of our world today, brothers and sisters. Places like America, like the Bible Belt, like McKinney, Texas, places where the gospel has had historic influence are those places in the future where there is a danger of superficiality, of a shell of religion replacing the real thing. This is how things tend to go. One generation, by God's grace, sees revival, a work of the Spirit. Jesus is adored, sin is repented of, and real godliness thrives. But as each subsequent generation comes, they get further from the foundation. They, they lose the, the work of God in the hearts of people. The, the focus shifts more to simply pre preserving the appearance of it. Maybe out of a, a desire to, to hold on to or honor a religious heritage. Maybe because we want to be on the right side and we know the God people, they're the good ones. That's who we want to associate with. But as soon as the gospel... As soon as the work of Jesus, the Spirit of God, is no longer at the center of any religious exercise, it's just empty and lifeless. You rip out the heart and there's nothing there. It's a shell that will count for nothing on the last day. And so this is a warning we ourselves must heed, knowing we live in a place where the gospel has had historic influence and we too will be tempted to have the veneer of religiosity without the heart. We need to ask if that's true of us. How can you tell? Let me give you two questions, two diagnostic questions to identify if you're Spiritual life is just a cover of a near with nothing inside. First, do you compare yourself to God's standard or just to other people? Notice that's what, that's what the Pharisees did. They look, okay, I'm, I'm not like that tax collector. I'm not like that sinner. I must be, I must be pretty good. And you can, you can do that today. You can say, I'm, I'm better than those guys. At least I'm not woke. At least, you know, there's, there's no rainbow flag hanging outside on my porch. I must be good. If you look at other people, you might feel great about yourself. But if you look to God, you will find, <laughs> you will find yourself far less impressed with your own morality. It's like, I, I can jump higher than my two-year-old. But who cares if the standard is who can jump to the moon? It's nothing to brag about. So do you compare yourself to other people? 
Or do you compare yourself to God? Second, do you care more about being godly or looking godly? Very simple. Do you care more about being godly or looking godly? So do you, do you hold back on confessing sin because it might give an appearance that you're not as godly as the people you're talking to might think? So you hold back. You, I don't want them to know that about me. There's a vulnerability, a weakness I have to show if I confess sin. And I'm really trying to keep up an appearance here. Are you simply pursuing a nice, tidy Christian life? Because that's what you want people to see. You live in a a nice, comfortable, suburban part of the country where having a nice, tidy life is what you're supposed to have. And that's what you want people to see. Who cares if it's true? Brothers and sisters, having a, a clean... But an empty life is like, like vacuuming your house when a tornado is about to take the roof off. It's a facade that it might make you feel better, but it is worthless and it will not count for anything on the last day. We're not here at the Parkway Church engaging in a, a little matter of dusting off your life with a little, a, a little dose of God so you can feel good about yourself if you walk out on a Sunday morning or tell your friends, yes, I go to church regularly. I got the Sunday school pin. It's just putting bread in the oven when Vesuvius is about, about to blow. We are engaging in eternal, essential, destiny-determining work when we gather and we come and we worship our holy God and we hear from his word. And if your life looks great but it's empty of Jesus, you are in profound danger and you might need to hear that today. Because the normal state of every human being is not a a moral neutrality. It is not a blank slate that you need to fill with the right stuff. It is bondage to the devil and love for sin. That's the bottom line. That's where we all Start and, and so no, no, no veneer of religiosity could ever solve that. Instead, we need a real solution. And here's the good news. There is one. Look what Jesus said in our text from a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. He says, when they accuse him of, 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 of using Satan, Beelzebub, to cast out a demon, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to bind Satan. I'm here to plunder his house. We don't need Jesus to tidy things up, give us a little dose of religion in our lives so we look good. We need him to go to war for our souls And that is what he has done. See, here's what what I think Jesus is doing with this whole unclean spirit analogy. I think he's using an extreme to make a point that applies to everything under it. So we would assume, surely, we would assume there is no more dramatic change someone could undergo than being possessed by a demon and having that demon cast out. 
Could there be anything more extreme than that? That's that's the most dramatic moral reformation you could ever think of. And Jesus is saying, even that counts for nothing. Even that by itself is worthless. It doesn't solve your problem. That's true of the extreme of of demon possession. It's true of every battle we face with, uh, we might fight, we face against sin and evil. It's not enough to just stop lying. It's not enough to just stop getting drunk or stop looking at pornography. You can't just stop sin. You have to replace it. Otherwise, it's empty and it'll come back. At our house in Chicago, our our last house before we moved here, we discovered one day in our utility closet, we had this uh, water pipe that had the tiniest little leak in it. So you literally had to put your hand there and you're like, my hand is wet. But you couldn't even see it. It was just this tiny little leak. And we noticed it because there was some, some dampness accumulating under it. And so I, because I possess no handyman knowledge at all, tried to tape it and it did nothing. It just leaked straight onto the floor. Uh, my wife figured out this really clever MacGyver contraption with involving a rubber band and a pen. And it actually did pretty good. But we knew, we live in Chicago, uh, one bad freeze and this thing could really be a problem. We can't just cover up the leak with temporary fixes. We need to replace the pipe. We need to put something else there. In the same way, you can't just keep hitting sin with temporary fixes that make things a little bit cleaner but don't address the real issue. You've got to put something in its place. This is the the conversation I have uh, every time I meet with a guy who is wrestling with pornography and I'll share, I'll share what I say with you because it's true of, of any sin struggle you might have. There are two sides to approaching this. The first is you must make war on your sin. You must put it to death. Jesus says very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, cut out your eye, cut off your hand, or you'll go to hell. Radical warfare tactics are necessary in fighting sin. So with pornography, eliminate your access, get accountability. Those things are really important. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Take this seriously. Pull up sin by the root. But here's the thing. None of that changes your heart. None of that gets down to the primary problem because the primary problem is not outside of you. It's not because you have access to something or because you have a circumstance in your life. The primary problem is inside of you. It is your heart. You can tidy things up and create some order, but it's emptiness that will fail you if you don't replace it. So on the one side, you must make war on your sin But the second side is to replace that sin with a love for Jesus that just pushes it all out. It means getting Psalm 16 verse 11 into your heart where David sings, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. I don't need joy from this world. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, O God, are pleasures forevermore. Lust holds out the lie of pleasure. It's just fleeting and frustrating in the end because it it didn't deliver on its promise. 
Only God is the author of true pleasure. Only God can deliver on that promise and give full and final satisfying joy in your life. And when your heart is full of delight in God and you're just in awe and full of him and amazed at him, all the cut-out-your-eye tactics become almost unnecessary. Because the root of sin can't grow back when the soil is already full with something else. Because repentance is, is not just a turning away, it's a turning towards. That's what the Pharisees missed. They just wanted to shun the bad stuff. We won't do that. And they were empty. But the Ninevites, the evil pagan Ninevites, turned from sin and turned to the true God. They had something fill them. So no matter what sin you're struggling with, anger, lust, gossip, pride, that is the solution. Don't just try to stop. You don't have what it takes. You have to replace it with the infinitely satisfying God. And Jesus came to do that. He came to give you himself because we have something greater than Jonah. We have something greater than Solomon. We have a prophet and a king, but most of all, we have a suffering savior who died to change us from the inside out and in doing so, defeat the devil's power over us. Look at Colossians chapter 2. And you... He just says, you, not some of you, you, all of you, Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then what happened? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's biblical language for Satan and his demons. He disarmed them. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus came to destroy the devil's power over us. How? By nailing our sins to the cross. No amount of moral reformation can deal with that problem. See, the... The best we can get on our own is nothing more than a demonic restlessness. Remember how the, the demon just never found rest? It went to waterless places and it just couldn't rest? Demons can't rest. But what does Jesus offer? At the end of Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As Augustine famously wrote, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Jesus is better. He's better than Solomon or Jonah or the lies of sin and the power of Satan. He's better than an empty shell of religion. He's better than a nice, conservative, clean, tidy life because none of those will last. None of those will help us when it matters most. 
But with Jesus, infinite joy is yours. And in Jesus, brothers and sisters, in Jesus, you can rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we were wandering and lost. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and you made us alive. You turned a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You reached into our souls and gave us life. So help us to turn from the things of this world that would call us back to death. Help us to turn and to hate sin, to make no provision for the flesh and to be filled with you every day of our lives. That we need, that the, the taste of sin would just be gone and we, we would taste your sweetness again and again. Help us to do that and trust and look forward to the day when you come and we will be with you forever and we will get to rest. Pray these things in your name. Amen.